0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice by Maryam Kaba. What if ordinary people have the power to collectively free ourselves? In this timely collection of essays and interviews, Mariam Kaba reflects on the deep work of abolition and transformative political struggle. With a foreword by Naomi Murakawa and a chapter on seeking justice beyond the punishment system, transforming how we deal with harm and accountability, and finding hope in collective struggle for abolition, Kaba's work is deeply rooted in the relentless belief that we can fundamentally change the world. As Kaba writes, nothing that we do that is worthwhile is done alone. As Eve Ewing says of the book, I want to say this is a generation-defining book, but that feels wrong because I know it will be shaping political imaginations for a century or more. It's generations-defining. This is a classic in the vein of Sister Outsider, a book that will spark countless radical imaginations. We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice by Maryam Kaba out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This week is a special crossover on Asian American politics with Andy Liu, Jay Caspian Kang, and Tammy Kim, the hosts of a really excellent podcast that I listen to constantly called Time to Say Goodbye. It's a podcast about all things Asian American, Asian, American, and really also just about all things. Anyhow, the bipartisan New Cold War with China, the Trumpian right-wing Sinophobic COVID rhetoric, Brutal street assaults and most horrifically the Atlanta murders have all put anti Asian racism and xenophobia front and center. Meanwhile, more Asian Americans voted for Trump in 2020 than in 2016, after years of shifting toward the Democratic Party. But in the Democratic primary, Asian Americans supported Bernie Sanders in huge numbers. Where do Asian Americans fit into American politics? And into an American racial hierarchy often defined by a black-white binary? Or is the very category of Asian-Americans part of the problem? This notion that immigrants from or descendants from China, Japan, the Philippines, India, Korea, Vietnam, and more, that they're all part of one homogenous group, that poor, working-class, middle-class, and rich people all have something in common by virtue of asianness We discuss all of that and more. Before we get started, This podcast is listener-supported, and the place for listeners like you to support us is at patreon.com slash thedig. We have books, we have mugs, tote bags to give away, but the real reason that I'm asking you to support this podcast is because it is support from listeners like you that allow us to put all of these episodes out there with nothing ever paywalled so that everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, and listen to everything, which is extremely important to us. So if you haven't done so yet, and you can afford to, please do support us at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, please sign up for the last dig book club event this April 18th with Sharice Burden-Stelly by visiting the dig slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. We set up the book club a little under a year ago to bring listeners together during this pandemic, and it's been really fun and great, but everyone is totally zoomed out. So thank you to everyone who participated, and we will certainly be doing more listener events in the future, just not a regular book club. But we very much encourage any of you out there who want to form Dig Book Clubs to read alongside the show with your friends and comrades to do so. Or, if anyone out there has ever wanted to start a DIG Discord or something like that, I've never used a Discord, but I hear that is a place where people gather to discuss podcasts. If you want to establish a DIG Discord, please do go for it. All right, here we go. Andy Liu is a historian of modern China and the author of T-War, A History of Capitalism in China and India. E. Tammy Kim is a freelance writer, a contributor to New York Times Opinion, and a former lawyer who likes to organize workers. Jay Caspian Kang is a writer-at-large for New York Times Magazine. His new book, The Loneliest Americans, will be published this fall. Andy Liu, Jay Caspian Kang, Tammy Kim, and Time to Say Goodbye listeners listening to my podcast for the first time, welcome to The Dig.
1: Hey, Dan.
2: Hey. Thanks for having us.
0: The Georgia murders have been linked to a broader wave of hate crimes against Asians, but many of the most high-profile street attacks caught on video appear to have been perpetrated by homeless people with mental illness. There's no doubt that Trump's Kung Flu, China virus, and the entire bipartisan new cold war with china nurtures anti-asian racism in the united states but do trumpian racism the georgia killer and homeless mentally ill people add up to something bigger how do you parse that all and what's at stake in how this is all framed
3: well i i don't know just from my perspective and i think we disagree a little bit on this you know, there seems to be a lot of different things going on at once. And one of them is uh, that, yeah, there are a lot of high-profile attacks that are caught on video now. And it's hard to make sense of what happens when things are caught on video in a short period of time and that there's a type of propulsion that happens when those, you know, in a narrative that sets in. And since the videos are so upsetting, you know, people are really clamoring for an explanation. And when it's paired with what Trump was saying, and you know, I think that there's no question that more people in their everyday lives or somebody in their family, somebody they know has probably encountered somebody saying something to them, right? Or or even attacking them. And that I think that, you know, I think that that has led to a real sort of fear amongst a lot of people. You know, it's, it's difficult to say, hey, you know, like this is what the data says. It's also difficult to say, In the other way, you know, like some of this bad data should be strung together to create like this massive narrative that hate crimes against Asians are up like 6,000 percent or something like that. Right. Because a lot of the things that are collected as, quote, hate crimes are just people saying stuff on the street or even like walking across the street or avoiding people on the on the subway or something like that, which, you know, none of which qualifies as actual hate crime. I mean, even if it is racist and despicable. And so, yeah, it's hard to take all those types of things together and force them all into one idea. But it does seem like that's what's happening in a lot of ways. And with what happened in Georgia, it complicates everything even further because, you know, this is a horrific act during a time when people are already scared. You know, like, it's, it's you don't want to, like, tell people that what they're thinking is wrong because you also have no idea, you know. So it's been a very confusing month or so or a couple months. Tammy?
1: I'm not sure I have too much to add. I think as Jay was saying, there's the question of whether there's actually like existentially a connection between all this stuff or like in reality, some sort of proven connection between all this stuff. And then there's just the question of how do people feel and how do people interpret these events? And um, I think on the latter count, yeah, for sure, people are kind of stringing all of this together and just feeling kind of overall sense of, I think, resentment and neglect And we're, we've obviously been concerned on our show about how the thinking is kind of taking a carceral turn, you know, in response to a lot of these actions um, and also perhaps a turn that could be like potentially disastrous politically. (laughs) So we're certainly worried about that. But I think also we've just wanted to like respect people's feelings of kind of mourning and like confusion.
2: Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot going on. I'd say as far as the Trump thing goes, I I felt this way strongly last year when this all began that Trump and COVID and all that stuff, for those who pay close attention, they didn't start all of this, that there were kind of mounting anti-China sentiments in the United States for a while, predating Trump. And I think it's probably going to continue under Biden and perhaps in softer forms. And so we don't want to get into, I think, a very tempting but simplistic narrative that Trump started this, right? And then we have to think about like, why is, why are there... You know why have polls showed shown Americans on average have more negative feelings towards China over the last ten years or so, and this raises interesting questions with regards to Atlanta. And I think, you know, we have we've had a long lot of discussions about the Atlanta attack, and I think I almost feel like we almost bracketed off from the other ones because it seems like it's obviously the most high profile, and we kind of know the most about it, even though there's still a lot we don't know about it. But I think one interesting that has come up, at least for me, um, in my mind a lot, is that, you know, let's say that anti-China sentiments are a big part of this, but the victims were not all Chinese. And then if you go back to the long list of crimes caught, or, you know, crimes, incidents caught on tape, there are Burmese, there's Indonesian, there's Thai, right? So there's a lot of non-Chinese people who are caught mm-hmm. up in, if we accept the narrative of an anti-Chinese moment in U.S. history. And that raises a lot of, I think, tough questions. Uh, you know, we've talked about, like, within the Chinese, within the Asian American community, have Chinese people stood there with other other Asian Americans or other immigrant groups? You know, like, I think there might be some skeletons in the closet that might come out if we've raised those questions. And, you know, one thing we talk about a lot about on the show is the international context. And the interesting thing is in Asia, there's no Asian solidarity. Like, a lot of people are mad at China right now. The Philippines, Korea, like India, right? So... Just the bottom line for me is like, I think a lot of us are just like, we don't know what's going on right now. And it's hard to come up with a slogan to encapsulate all of it.
0: What's at stake in how this is all framed, which is what, when I was sort of discussing your analysis with a friend, an Asian American friend, Jay, was sort of the question that was posed back to me. Why is it important to attempt to get it right, given how people are feeling?
3: Well, I mean, I don't know. I think there's a couple of reasons why it's important to get it right. But I you know, and I think that right now it's difficult, but I do think that, you know, just like with what happened with Vincent Chin, which was like a very high profile murder that happened in the 80s, you know, where a Chinese American auto worker was beaten to death and by two people who were mad about Japanese auto industry taking jobs, right? That was a pretense that they said they did it. Um, and that sort of sparked a whole wave of Asian American identity creation, right? A friend of mine actually calls it now the uh, Vincent Chin Industrial Complex. Right? Tons of papers, a whole you know, a very famous documentary, and it's a lynch it's sort of a linchpin of uh, Asian American studies, right? That Third World Liberation Front and then all that sort of history about Chinese Exclusion Act and stuff like that, which everybody I think has seen repeated over and over again, both in the media and on social media. Michael Eric Dyson actually just wrote a piece about it yesterday, I think, right, along his, and recounting the same exact history, Vincent Chin. Um, So if this is a moment in which that is going to happen, which I think it is, where, you know, there's an identity formed and there is some sort of, you know, we are all X, then I think it's important to get what, A, is actually happening correct, but I also think it's important to try and make, I don't know, respectful interventions on what X is going to be. You know, I think that on our podcast and a lot of what I've been writing recently is just an attempt to, A, not quite figure out exactly what's happening, because I think that's almost unknowable, but to at least sort of push people towards a different type of identity formation than what I see happening, which is, uh, you know, what scared people always do, especially if they don't have a great foothold in this country, which is call for law and order, creation of like a nationalistic type of identity without really thinking, well, is this really a long-term type of thing? Like what happens when these attacks don't happen as much anymore or if they're not caught on tape? Like what what do we go forward with outside of, you know, well, for this period of time this happened? You know, I don't know. For those reasons, I think it's like important to just, I don't know, I don't state my opinion. <laughs> Never stop. This is what I think. you,
0: You pointed to a pretty serious problem in a piece you wrote for the New York Times before the Atlanta killings about the about the high profile street assaults, and you argued that a sort of high level discourse that was taking place in you know places like the New York Times around anti Asian hate crimes was disconnected from something more complex happening on the ground, which is that many Asians were interpreting these attacks as black people attacking Asian right. people right. which taps into some tensions and conflicts with just really deep roots and you write that these professionals your your colleagues tasked with publicly addressing these issues have found it too just too uncomfortable to do so which you argue could lead to bigger problems what's what's going on there and why is the failure to address it head- on dangerous?
3: Well, I think that the most comfortable response that one can give in our position, right, in our meeting, like, I don't know, somebody like me and Tammy, or Tammy, who is East Asian and works in the media, and works generally in what we can, you know, we can just frankly say are liberal spaces, right, left of the political spectrum. Easiest answer you can give is everything is white supremacy. You know, this is white supremacy these are white attackers. But, you know, my thing was like here in the Bay Area where I live and which is what before Atlanta was sort of the epicenter of all of, of these high profile attacks and a lot of the outcry, you know, the attackers very oftentimes weren't white. And the way that that was being interpreted by the mostly Chinese American community here, but, you know, there are also other communities, Cambodian, and Laotian, um, although and, uh Vietnamese communities here was that you know this was an extension of what had happened in 2010 when there was a whole bunch of very high profile black on Asian attacks which included an elderly person being pushed onto the onto the train tracks and killed and so when people have that sort of localized memory and it's highly racialized and then the national media and people who come in are saying oh it's white supremacy in the sort of way that's extremely abstract. I think that that leads to sort of reactionary politics outside of it, right? Like where you just say these people are all lying or their heads are in the sand or they're just saying this type of thing to be polite. Or they don't, you know, And I, I, I don't know. You see all of it. You see like, oh, this person is just a sellout for like their, you know, white liberal editors. And the, the problem with that is not that you can't just ignore that. Because there is some element of truth to that, right? There is an element of truth that the easiest explanation is always going to be, at least in these spaces, is to sort of hope that it's a white perpetrator, so that you can say the same things about white supremacy. And in the aftermath of Atlanta, and I would say that you know, I want to preface this by saying that of all the things, like it's one of the least important things, but I did think that it was very telling that there almost seemed to be like an exhale amongst a lot of the punditry and a lot of the media people that. Finally, we can <laughs> finally we can just drop all of our posts about white supremacy. Finally, we can talk about the Chinese Exclusion Act. Finally, we can talk about Vincent Chin, and then you see this explosion of all that everywhere. Whereas before, it's much more restrained and not really discussed. And I think that part of the reason was because people did not want to engage with like the both the local story, the long the long other history, which is you know includes the LA riots and includes. Uh, Latasha Harlins, 15 year old girl was shot in the back of the head by a Korean store owner, um, over a bottle of orange juice, right? The, the boycotts that were happening, um, during that time. And even before that, you know, like, uh, long histories that, that need to be brought into the conversation or else the conversation will be meaningless to a lot of the people who are experiencing this street violence, because you can say all you want about like how white supremacy X, Y, Z, doesn't really make sense to people who are, you know, saying, well, you know, how does this make sense? Right? Like, uh, when the two highest profile attacks here, or I guess the three highest profile attacks here are all by, you know, um, not white assailants. And I don't know, I
0: just here being the East Bay.
3: Yeah, and in San Francisco. I just think that that needs to be at least addressed, you know, and that, that's sort of where I was. That's, that's why I wrote that piece.
0: Tammy, you and Jay have both Written about the the LA riots. During that riot, more than 2,000 Korean stores were looted or burned to the ground, and Korean men took to the roofs of those businesses with rifles and, and shot at looters. And as you mentioned, Jay, prior to the acquittal of the cops who viciously beat Rodney King, there was the Korean store owner who shot and killed 15 year old Latasha Harlins over a bottle of orange juice. What role did Black-Asian conflict and the way that race, class, nationality all intersected in South Central LA at the time, play in those riots. And looking back now nearly 30 years later, what lessons, if any, does it offer? And to what extent do you see similar dynamics at play?
1: Yeah, so that the memory of the LA riots definitely still, to my mind, influx Asian and Black dynamics. And I would add also the Latino community, which isn't often talked about in the context of the riots, but when you look at the prop, both the property damage and the physical damage to human beings um, that occurred, Latinos were a huge part of that. And, um,
0: and that who was arrested, many Latinos were arrested. And who
1: were arrested and yeah, who were brutalized by the police and, you know, and now also if you go to South LA, I mean, it's predominantly Latino and that's just, you know, the, the sort of physical and human landscape of that area has also changed a lot, but, I think also at that time there were like the boycotts in New York where there were black Asian interactions that were very uncomfortable. And all of this is about sort of who had kind of this immigrant capital in black neighborhoods that were had sort of low barriers of entry, you know, to sort of um, petit bourgeois and the resentments that kind of fan out from that. And, And that to some extent still continues. Right. Because there are new waves of immigrants. There are stores that are passed down. There are still a lot of interactions, especially, I would say, in lower income urban areas between, you know, and now it might be more Southeast Asian immigrants in Black communities or Latina communities. So it's something I think that, as Jay was mentioning, you know, when the attacks occurred in the Bay, I certainly like thought a lot about the LA riots. And I think other people did too. And I think it's something that, you know, is is still very difficult to talk about because we have a contested terrain in the kind of like POC politics that that we try to practice on the left, you know, that we have a sort of imagined unity um, of people of color and we can analyze things through this lens of white supremacy. And, you know, and some of that is kind of mythical, but also a good myth to pursue in some sense, right? That there are these political coalitions that we kind of knew were were somewhat whimsical but we had sort of committed ourselves to some decades ago and that are still occasionally useful in constructing a kind of politics that we want to live but i think la to me is still is a reminder of the fact that those tensions still exist and a sort of challenge to to also try to figure out ways of overcoming through organizing uh, those tensions and, and to still believe in some sort of like unified project across race
2: well i think a lot of this stuff gets Perhaps the bigger meta questions about like what is what is race and what racism, and what is the history of it, not and so I don't I, I assume you know the three of us uh, from our conversations we're not necessarily looking for Asian Americans to do some sort of soul searching into like the anti blackness within Asian culture although that's probably worth investigating right but I, I think for most we would kind of think like you know race and racism isn't about this kind of deep-seated thing that people just kind of carry with them in a sort of like right fragility style worldview. It's more that, you know, if you look at the history of these places in the Americas, North America and the Americas, like Asian and Black and Indigenous and Latin American and white, people have lived amongst each other for centuries at this point. And the sort of familiar narrative of white-Black racism is simplistic and infantilizing, I think, for a lot of people. And that might maybe that's getting to what Jay is talking about in terms of like the anger, the sort of sense of being lied to. That for a lot of us, like it's not news, right? That you have not just like top-down or you know directional racism. That it's complicated and 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 multi-directional, and that comes out of perhaps what Tammy is talking about, right? These are about class distinctions. These are about occupational and geographic, you know, specialization that gives birth to racism and racial stereotypes. And it's not just this sort of like mentally, like culturally deep thing that we have to have some soul-searching conversation about. It's like, we have to confront these things. Uh, you know, like the, the stuff is just kind of like hiding there in plain sight. We can talk about it. It doesn't have to be like this, you know, national referendum on, on what's wrong with Asian culture.
3: Yeah. And I, I think the precarity that Tammy was talking about is interesting, right? That I think that a lot of times it's difficult for Asian Americans to discuss this stuff because they feel like they'll be booted out of the POC coalition, and you know the the truth is that the vast majority of Asian Americans don't give a shit about being they you know they don't give a shit about being part of a POC coalition. (laughs) They really don't. (laughs) I I don't know many who do, who aren't you know within the academy, the media you know professional ranks. So it's interesting because then you have two layers of message, and the first layer of message is like. You know, let's just talk about like '92, right? Like in Los Angeles, and you have people who are just like, "Why did this happen?" You know, like why are why are they only burning down our stores, right? And then of course you have like a protective, reactionary politics that come out of it, and then you have a reaction that is coming from, you know, people who are mostly in the academy at the time or activists or organizers who are organizing summits, for example, right? After all this happened, and marches and and conversations and panels those two conversations have no overlap with one another. And, you know, the people who are having the solidarity conversations, the people who are having the conversations about, many of them are organizers who are working within the community. So there is that, right? And those people, I think, should be lauded It's the type of work that we would like to do. But the sort of messaging that goes out is completely divorced from the actual reality of how a lot of these Korean immigrants feel. And it feels like it you know, it felt then and it feels now to me at least as a sort of wallpapering over, right? Like how do we, how do we sort of reject the ugly parts of our immigrant past so that we can sort of evolve into POC coalition? But then also there's a way to interpret that and say, well, how, how do we sort of absolve ourselves of all the ugly immigrant stuff so that we can basically just become white liberals, right? And I think there's a lot of that going on right now as well. Like uh, Andy said, you know, Ivy League students in a very sort of high profile way during the summer were writing uh, letters home to their parents and they would publish the letters to their parents. And, you know, they're like, and and there's this sort of shame and deference in, you know, the letters are about like uh, anti-blackness and their communities. And in some ways that's a great project. And in other ways, it's just like, well, why are you doing this? Like, what are you ashamed of? What are you trying to purge from your own self And what do you want to be after the purge is over? And it almost feels like they're trying to disassociate themselves from like the bad type of immigrants and that they're trying (laughs) to sort of evolve into this, you know, like pure, pure, progressive person who does not actually think of themselves as an oppressed person, but only is concerned about other oppressed persons, which in effect is like a white liberal.
0: Yeah, there was a lot of talk last summer about how to combat or the, the necessity to combat anti-Black racism in Latino and Asian communities, but not so much about of a discussion about what sort of politics would bring Asians and Latinos into a left coalition and keep them from turning rightward. Does this entire approach miss something about how to actually combat racism, that building a majority coalition behind a politics that is anti-racist involves something beyond telling people not to be racist or reminding them that Republicans are racist or to tell them to tell their grandmothers that they're racist or whatever?
2: I mean, yeah, this is a question I've been thinking of, of is, is anti-white supremacy like a basis for organization versus shared material interests, right? And I think the thing that pushes, let's say, conservative or on the fence asian to Asian-American immigrants, left is not necessarily banding together against white supremacy, it's things like education and healthcare and things that they think will help them move up. And you can say like upward mobility is a conservative issue, but it's also like a leftward one. Like it could be, it could be framed in a way that is appealing to people in terms of getting them to buy into some sort of universalist program of social welfare and so on. But I mean, Tammy, you know, I'd be curious, what do you think? Like, does anti-white supremacy, does it mobilize people or does it just kind of get people to like, you know, share blog posts about,
1: about, <laughs>
2: about their experiences?
1: I think it's pretty hard to mobilize around that because it is so abstract. And also, if you're talking about actually organizing working class people, like what does that mean? You know, I think that most of our articulations of it are so sort of academic. I was thinking, though, about that the 2020 election really, I think, gives us our answer that white supremacy isn't really an orga- anti-white supremacy isn't an organizing principle, in fact. Right. Because all of the POC numbers went up for Trump. Um, So just even at the presidential level, I think we can say that, you know, we had the most sort of obviously outwardly, like ostentatiously racist president. And and yet that didn't serve as a kind of ground for some sort of, you know, POC unity. Yeah, I mean, I think all four of us would agree that we need, you know, universal public goods and some sort of discourse around a basic fundamental way to thrive and to flourish in this country as a way to talk to especially new immigrants about what it is they should want. And I think if you look at kind of democratic or kind of liberal left, you know, street organizing, grassroots organizing of, say, like new immigrant East Asians and new immigrant Latinos, like it takes a lot of work to convince those folks to vote a particular way. And they have to know why they're doing that. And I think organizers do that and they are like, this is a pro-immigrant platform, right? Or this is a platform that's good, like you're on Medicaid, this is what you should want. And so I think making those our goals instead and then eventually bringing those groups together through the organizing networks is really the only way there's actually like a strategic unity for these people. I think otherwise, there'll just be a lot of miscommunication around what this kind of theoretical goal of fighting racism is.
3: Right, and if you look at the polling, right, um, in both the Latino and the Asian communities, when they prioritize what they care about, you know, it's education, healthcare, you know, like social it, anti-racism stuff is like fourth, <laughs> right? Um, uh, immigration broadly is is not even that high up, um, and so it has you know one of the frustrations that that I had personally with the you know the messaging around Biden. Um, the Biden campaign was that it just seemed to be like, hey, if if we say we're not racist and everyone, <laughs> yeah. everyone, all the all the race people <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> are going to be like, oh, yeah, cool. You know, you have my vote. Yeah, you know, there's totally. like this almost like taking for granted that if you stand up and you say Black Lives Matter, if you paint it on a street, then like it's not just all the black people now are are happy with you. It's like all the other people are happy with you too. Yeah. And that certainly isn't true on any level, you know, like at, for any of those groups. And uh, that sort of broad anti-racist politics, like it just, like it it falls apart the second, like you don't have to do that much. Just walk into like a Chinese restaurant in like a major city in like the Chinatown and just be like, yeah, like, like <laughs> These people don't give a shit about any of this stuff. You know, <laughs> like how could they? You know, yeah. so that's the sort of frustration with it. I think that that the three of us have that we talk about quite a bit is just like, how, you know, you have to talk to these people at some level without patronizing them. And I really do think that uh, the way in which that pride language takes hold, you know, it, it's meaningless to them, and that doesn't mean that you should abandon it right? But that you need a specific way to talk to these people.
0: And yet people believe that this incantation that Trump is racist, the Democrats are not racist, they believed that it was so innately powerful. Why more specifically, did it not resonate on the ground in the way that people just sort of presumed that it would? And what does that gap reveal?
2: Well, you know, we talked a lot about Kamala, right? And how Kamala was suddenly like the first Asian American vice presidential candidate, (laughs) Once you became the Kent nominee, but in the primaries, this was a little bit more ambiguous, right? So just one one data point would be something like they might not have thought too much about these categories, right? And then they thought by by picking Kamala, uh, you know, that they would get the Chinese vote and the Korean vote in a way that seems a little bit out of touch, right? With with like that way that people think about identity, at, at a basic level. I think, you know, like I think the campaign for Kamala was a lot about, you know, identity identifying with her in a way that maybe was successful with Obama um, in pre- previous campaigns. And I think it, I don't know. I mean, they won the election. So I guess we can't say it was a failure, but it was what w- we didn't see nearly the same, I think, identity-based swings as before.
0: I mean, not only did more Asian Americans vote for Trump in 2020 than in 2016, but in some places and in some communities, the shift was just enormous, like Vietnamese Americans in Orange County, California, just like, so, and there was this whole ahead of the 2020 election, there were loads of articles. You can see them like published just like weeks ahead of the 2020 elections about how Asian Americans had once been conservative leaning, but in recent years (laughs) have been shifting decisively leftward, like weeks ahead of, of November 2020. And then that all gets scrambled. What's the chronology here? Why were Asian Americans voting so solidly Republican? And then what accounts for this shift leftward that w- seemed like it was kind of permanent in some ways? And then what the hell happened?
3: Uh, it's it's a lot to do with immigration patterns. Um, and it has to do with who the voters are. At the beginning, you know, it's a ton of Reaganite Asian Americans who came here and they believe in the American dream, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of them come from over here on skilled worker visas. And so they've already entered the middle class a few years into coming to the United States. And so they have middle class interests. But the question of why there is a swing is, you know, it's it's very complicated. It has a lot. To, it has everything to do with like, it's it's triggered by everything from like geography, like where did you end up? So, you know, some of the explanation of why in Orange County, there's a big rightward swing amongst the Asian communities because they're around a bunch of conservative people. You know, <laughs> so it makes sense that like you take on the politics of the people that you're around. Now, there are other reasons, you know, obviously like uh, anti-communism, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that's a big part of it. And uh, it doesn't really swing until I think like 92 or so dramatically. And then it, you start to see a swing. And then by the time that it's uh you know Hillary Clinton. It's a huge population, and that's because a lot of the people who vote tend to be the kids of the people who immigrated here in the 70s and 80s. And those people, a lot of times, are educated in uh, liberal environments, and you know they they leave college and just like the three of us, you know they <laughs> they have they they have very left leaning politics or or progressive politics or just straight line centrist Democrat politics, but you know, and I guess in that way, you know, that the sort of anti-racism stuff does make sense, right? Because it does, I think it does take kids who are, think of themselves as minorities in America, but also American and makes them hypersensitive to racism, right? And so they pick the less racist party, but now there are other immigrants coming on at the same time, right? So it's not just one continuum. There are more populations coming in and they have different politics. And so it's all just a big scramble, but I don't and it's very hard to, like, create one narrative out of just because it's so many different things going on at once.
1: And I also think it's not until recently that any politician has to take Asian America seriously as a voting block. Like, it wasn't that big of a population. Like, it has been marked as a fast-growing population, however the grouping is, for some years now. But, you know, I think it's, it's still a fairly recent phenomenon where we can actually exercise some political muscle as a contingent.
2: Yeah. And, you know, just to add to that, you know, when politicians speak to Asian Americans, they're probably speaking, as Jay said, to people like us, right, who who they actually encounter in the, I guess, in the D.C. world, the New York world of like political, politically active people. But if we disaggregate, I think you have to disaggregate. You can't talk about Asian Americans in any meaningful sense once you break it down into like who's a second generation, who's first generation and what part of the world do they come from. I can say anecdotally, like Taiwanese immigrants were very overwhelmingly GOP for reasons to do with geopolitics and the world that they came from growing up in the 60s and 70s, where the GOP was the party defending Taiwan. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case with South Korea and anti-communism has been thrown out there. But like a lot of, I think, Chinese immigrants from the PRC, which is, you know, a sense of the communist country, have kind of right-leaning politics as well for reasons that are also specific to the Chinese experience. And so I think one thing we've kind of talked a lot about on the show is you have you can't just assume people show up on 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 the show up to the United States as a blank slate, right? They come they bring with them the histories of the countries they come from and the values and the ideas and so forth. And Asian American kind of conceals all as a category, Asian American conceals a lot of that. So it'd be useful to kind of think about these things as as networks or as international processes as well.
3: And there are also voters that have zero outreach from either party. So that's one of the things that's interesting and in a lot of the data that's been collected that, you know, like a lot of it is inconclusive and it's hard to, but the one thing that's very clear is that in every single election for the past 20 years, like the gap between every other community having reached out to in some way by politicians, people running for office and Asians is like, it's like a huge gap. And so you know, at at that point, you know, there's almost no interaction with any sort of machine politics or anything like that. And so then you have a community that's just sort of, you know, like they're not directed in any sort of way or communities that aren't directed in any sort of way.
0: One thing we should cover before we get any further is just like what to make of the term Asian American. Um, Jay, you've written, quote, Asian American is a mostly meaningless term. Nobody grows up speaking Asian American. Nobody sits down to Asian American food with their Asian American parents. And nobody goes on pilgrimages back to their motherland of Asian America. <laughs> what To what extent does Asian America exist? Do Asian Americans exist? And to what extent does its existence happen in response to things like what have happened recently? What happened to Vincent Chen in, in Detroit in 1982, to what's happening with these conflicts over prestigious high school and university admissions.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's a very convenient term that's leveraged politically that in these types of moments, and I'm not saying it's done cynically, I just think it's done because like people are confused and... You know, there is a, the one thing that we can say is that like, if me and Andy stand next to each other and somebody racist comes up and they want to punch a Chinese person, it's a kind of 50-50 which one they're (laughs) going to choose, you know? Like, I don't have an advantage because I'm not Chinese. (laughs) Punch one of us, you know? (laughs) That is a reality, right? But I don't think that, you know, it's not sort of the political history of that term. It is just sort of a truth. And I think that for people who were here before that it might have meant something more, like people who might have been fifth generation or people who were interned, you know, Japanese-Americans who were interned. I think that that, there might have been like more coherence because there's so few people, right, and they tended to live in similar cities. But even then, you know, it's not like the Chinese-Americans were interned either, so it's not like they were receiving the same sort of treatment. And so, yeah, I, you know, just cards on table, like I don't think that it's a particularly useful term. I would argue that we should just disaggregate into countries of origin, maybe not even that, (laughs) you know, I think that people should identify more as immigrants, because I think that that sort of, you know, is a universal experience that, that all people from Asia probably have is some sort of history of immigration and that's why i'm so resistant to the creation of an asian american identity out of this type of moment because i just don't know i don't see any way that it would go that doesn't that would reflect my politics or what i think would actually help the people who are you know now asian american i guess you know it is a it is a conversation i've never really understood and um and yet we do like a podcast, Asian American podcast. <laughs> so there I you say. are.
0: Do you agree with Jay? Because the term emerged out of kind of among left-wing student activist, activists in, in late 1960s California, this sort of third-worldist political milieu that at least wanted something different out of the term and the identity than the reality that Jay's critiquing.
1: I feel differently than Jay. I think... Um... In place of his mostly meaning is that I would say it's a synthetic term that is still useful and like affectively like is very powerful and that I've lived and enjoyed. Like in college I did was like that was my world like Asian America like we did Asian American things like all of my friends were Asian American and they're still, like, some of my closest people, and that's, I mean, it isn't an accident, as Jay was just joking, that, like, Jay and Andy and I have a lot of stuff in common. Like, we have different backgrounds and different migration histories, and we speak different natal languages, and yet there's something. And so I think, like, yeah, there are certainly dangers in kind of reacting to violence by forming certain sorts of political coalitions that may or may not be you know, always sanguine. I think there are like different ways they can go terribly awry. And yet I would say that emotionally, culturally, like spiritually, there is like a there there that I have enjoyed and continue to enjoy in certain spaces.
0: Andy?
2: Yeah, I don't have too much to add to that. I think both have fair points. I was just thinking the other day that in writing or in language, we kind of stop saying like whites and blacks or it's like white people, black people, (laughs) But we still say Asians all the time. But I feel like Asian Americans say it to each other as a shorthand, and it's acceptable. And I, I was thinking, like, what's up with that? It's sort of this inside language we have when we talk about talk to each other and say, "There's like, you know, you know, when Asians do this, right?" But because it's too it's, long
3: <laughs> to type out the other
2: part of it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's two syllables instead of one. But I, I might feel differently, Dan, if you said it. So I don't know. I feel like there might be st- still sort of like an inside outside <laughs> sort of thing where you know it's like you know, as long as you can talk about Asians to other Asians, you know, there is a sort of shared experience. I think a lot of it, honestly, we talk about this on the show a lot is like consumption, you know, like we all eat the same foods and we, and we share these foods. But we don't though.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Close mean, enough. You know, like, that's, I mean, that's, to respond to you earlier, I don't disagree with Tammy that there's some sort of connection that, you know, you sort of Hang out together. You go to boba shops together. But <laughs> I, I assumed you, know, you were thing referring thing to I, boba.
0: I, I to you were referring to boba, Andy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the thing that I was that I was sort of re- responding to when I wrote that was the idea that the third worldist sort of late sixties, and then um, you know through that extension, the Asian American Studies and the Academy has sort of put out there that this one moment in the in the late sixties that happened at San Francisco State and at Cal Berkeley. That student activists created like a multiracial coalition, and that Asian American as a term was created. And that that term was always going to be radical in its politics, right? That it was going to spawn like several Maoist organizations, (laughs) that it was going to always stand in solidarity and do like yellow peril stands with black power, that it was going to be internationalist as well. I think all that stuff is awesome you know, but it has no relevance to the lives of most people. You know, you learn about it in college, maybe. I didn't, you know, but I learned about it after college. But, you know, highly educated person who would be in contact with those types of ideas. And so for my son, like, what I was talking about was, like, if that is constantly harped upon as being, like, that this is what it is. This is what it is. This is what it is. Right. And that idea doesn't make sense to 99% of the people who you're saying, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. Then the term is meaningless. Right. Um, And that those people can scream at me all they want, you know, <laughs> which they have you know, the third world is <laughs> um, uh, they could, they get as bad at me as they want, but like, come on, you know, like it was, it was, I am accused many times of being very glib about history, but, you know, I find that to be a very, I think that's sort of rotten accusation. But, you know, I've gone back. I've read all the documentation of that time, all the primary sources. And even then there was conflict within those groups about whether or not this was just, you know, whether or not this was too abstract, right? And then you had kids writing in letters to like uh, Gidra or any of the places that were the sort of main publishing houses for this, this type of thought being like, like what you guys are saying doesn't make sense to me. You know, I just want to be like a American guy. Like, I'm sorry, I just want to like move to the suburbs and have a house and have kids. And so even in 1967, right, before when Asian Americans were much more scarce than they are now, you know, there was conflict over that. And so this creation of this sort of huge history out of that moment is what I was responding to. I don't, you know, I, I, I just don't believe in it as a political term in that way. Sorry, just
2: one last thing. In that moment in the 60s, I just came across the other day, of people in America who are Asian, 40% were born in the United States, or were born outside the United States. And now today, those who identify as Asian, 80% were born out of the United States. So I think one thing that's happened since that 60s moment when Asian American as a category was born is that Asian Americans became more Asian, right? And less American. And I think that's something that, it might be something that's kind of, you running a theme that kind of runs throughout a lot of the stuff we talk about, the contrast between the 60s and the present and the need to think about that would force you to think about like what is actually it mean to be what does it mean to actually be Chinese American versus Korean American versus Vietnamese which maybe in the 60s they thought that would that was gonna die that was gonna fade away and and because as people kind of became more American and more you know domestic centered then those differences would matter less
3: right so like those those uh... If you are a third generation person who Chinese American who was from Salinas, California, and you grew up in like an agricultural society, then of course, uh, and you thought of yourselves entirely as American, then of course you had ideas of solidarity with like the with the, with the people who were in Salinas with you, You're right, which was a lot of different people of different races. But you know, what happens right before 1967, 1968, when Third World liberation happens is that the 1965 Immigration Act passes. And a whole, you know, it's almost like there's two Asian Americas, right? There's pre-1965 and post-1965. And all, the three of us are post-1965. I would imagine almost every Asian American that anybody listening to this show knows is post-1965, <laughs> right? Like, um, that means that all those people come in, they have no context. If I, You know, my mother is a, if I asked her what Third World Liberation Front is, despite her reading my writing, she would have no idea what the Third World Liberation Front is, right? And that... So for us, the children of them, of those immigrants who do identify as American, then, you know, like, it's a little bit harder to expect all those people to have the same sort of deep rooted ideas about being American, especially when, as Andy said, 80% of them weren't even born here. I wasn't born in the United States either, so... Maybe next generation is when third world stuff will come back. Although I see it coming back with, I'm 41, so I see it coming back with like 19, 20 year olds. And maybe maybe that's the timeline.
0: Yeah, Jay, you you mentioned that people seem eager to be able to invoke the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act as though history informs American racism in some sort of self-explanatory way. Obviously, it powerfully shapes every moment of American history, but it's certainly not always self explanatory it's a bit more obviously explanatory for say black americans where you can draw who are descendants of slaves you can draw a direct line, draw a direct line from slavery to the defeat of reconstruction to the great migration to segregation and ghettoization to where we are today and you can learn a lot just from connecting those dots but as you say with asian americans i think there's a much sharper break between pre and post 1965 immigration And just to give context for for listeners, between the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act to the 1917 Asian Bard Zone, which restricted or excluded pretty much everyone from Asia from entry minus Filipinos because they were U.S. colonial subjects, there's just a huge break that takes place. And so it's an incredibly heterogeneous experience, not just in terms of all the countries people are coming from, but in terms of when they come here, my upstairs neighbor and good friend Mia Inouye, a political Theorist is a fourth generation Japanese American who her family was arrived in the U.S. to work in plantations in Hawaii, was interned in Utah, and then became became leading figures in the Mormon
3: community there.
0: And that's just like an entirely different experience than those that you've grown up with.
3: Right. They can draw the lines. Right. If you've been there that long. And so few people are because, you know, the line is like, nobody could come in. <laughs> you know, so then it's like, well, if no one can come in, then it's, you know, by definition a small group. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. That that sort of history is, like you said, Dan, I don't know if it is meaningful except in outlining a attitude towards Asian Americans throughout American history. And in that way, I think you can say, yeah, right? But it is not a lived history for the majority of people who are here. It is not a direct lineage that they can draw back right? um, in the same way that, that black Americans can. Also, you know, I think in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of, uh, it's it not the groups that are recent immigrants now, like that history, I don't know, it, it feels like it is a project that is not entirely about them, right? It is about, it is about white people. It's not about the actual immigrants themselves. Like, it's about what white people do. Um, And that way, I don't, you know, I don't think it's particularly useful.
1: But I think there's a way in which you, you don't have to know that specific history and the literal facts of that history to still feel like Asian American is a thing. Not just effectively and emotionally, but also politically or socially or as a policy matter. You know, totally anecdotally, like my mom migrated here not on a skilled visa and the people she encountered and was very close to in her early days of migration were all like new Asian immigrants of various kinds <laughs> and you know I think she she did feel like there was something about their Asianness, their new experience in the U.S. and perhaps it would have been true for any new immigrant you know if they had had African new African immigrants or new Latin American immigrants who they were with that would have been the case too but I know for her in her adult life that has been important but she uh, she doesn't know that history of like Gidra and the Berkeley moment, <laughs> um, and yet I think she would say there is a kind of thing that is Asian American.
2: Yeah, I, I think the fear is we go too determinist and say like, well, you don't right. change, you don't change after you come here. My wife is actually like fourth generation Hawaiian Japanese as well. Right,
1: that's right.
2: Her family and me, like, we just look alike, <laughs> and there's a lot of like, feel, feeling <laughs> out, like we don't speak the same languages. Um, but you know, there's still like it's familiar. You know, yeah, we all like Jeremy Lin. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's a thing.
1: Low bar, uh-huh. Andy.
2: <laughs> you know, it's like uh, yeah, it's it's different, obviously, than than if she were you know born in the '80s uh, or if her family came over in the '80s, like mine did. But you know, it's it's like you know, once we grow up, we we choose who we hang out with and who we talk to and and all that stuff. And that there's still there's still a chance to to create something out of that. Yeah.
3: Uh, uh, the last thing I'll say about this is that my critique is not on an interpersonal level. People can feel whatever they want. My sense, yeah, no, is, that my sense is really just that I do think that there is a way in which this Asian-American identity is totally class-bound, right? And it is always representative of an upwardly mobile population. And, you know, there's a reason why I think after these shootings, there's this effort to make this big history so that everybody who's Asian-American can feel part of it. And then there's, you know, people going on about, well, I'm so sad that I took an Americanized name, right? You know, it's talking about microaggressions and things like that. I think that that's harmful. Like, I think that when the actual conditions of the women who were killed in this attack are ignored, right? And that everything just becomes, ah, Asian America, Asian America, Asian America, then you, you've basically erased everything that put them in a vulnerable position in the first place, Right. And then it does just become well, eighteen sixty seven, this happened, the Chinese Exclusion Act happened. Nineteen sixty seven, we rose up with like the Panthers and AAPA and part of the Third World Liberation Front. I'm just like, what what are you doing here? You know, are you just trying to create identity that you, as an upwardly mobile Asian American person like me, you know, I am also part of this population, can fully inhabit these spaces without actually thinking about the material and actually much more important differences between you and those other people who are actually more vulnerable. And, you know, that's the part where I find that identity would be to be not toxic, but just to be like a problem for me personally. But yeah, people can, you know, people can play league of legends and hang out. <laughs> 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 I mean, I do that too. So, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I just don't think the identity part is but, interesting.
2: That could be true even with, That's why you have that nice headset. <laughs> yeah. That could be true even within <laughs> Korean, Jay, like, or or Chinese, right? So Of course, that, yeah. So that's, yeah. that doesn't solve it either, necessarily.
0: Yeah, to what extent is this... To what extent is the critique that this is an identity category that doesn't match people's lived experience? And, and to what degree is this a problem of any imagined community?
2: That's not classed, right?
0: That's not classed.
2: Right, yeah. I, th- I think... Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, these might be two separate things, right? Where because
0: like, what's the what what's nation what's nation state identity? What's national identity? Like, what, like, what how does it function under know? capitalism? It's to tell you that you you have more in common with a rich person right, from right, right, your right. country than you do right. a working yeah. class person from another country. Yeah, but let's sure. talk about a more capacious but more recently coming into crisis concept that of people of color, which Jay, you unsurprisingly have written just like Asian Americans, does not correspond to people's lived reality in any meaningful way. But Tammy, you also, unsurprisingly, and I love that you have a podcast where you disagree. Um, It makes it fun to listen to. (laughs) You've written about the value of the term POC, people of color, particularly in contrast to the neologism BIPOC, which has kind of appeared as far as my 38-year-old leftist self, can process it kind of like out of nowhere, but becomes suddenly extremely de rigueur in the last year or so. Um, And Tammy, you wrote, quote, this was how the term came to me and came to structure much of the U.S.-based activism I've been involved with since the late 1990s. In student organizing as well as immigrant rights work, housing campaigns, and the labor movement, people of color and the more revolutionary women of color helped define a united front against those in power who... We're almost invariably white and male, whether boss or landlord, provost or governor. Rejecting the term people of color may be of little consequence, but rejecting the solidarity implies can result in an inaccurate and unduly limiting worldview. How does this floating signifier of people of color operate right now? Why is it suddenly in a state of a bit of a of a crisis, and what do you make of the term BIPOC that many people want to see replace and supplant people of color and where Asian Americans fit or really kind of don't entirely fit within it.
1: I think we Asian Americans don't know if we're included under either of those categories. And maybe as Jay was saying, we don't care, but I think also a lot of people who are people of color who aren't us don't care whether we're in there or not. Now, I think BIPOC is a product of our Black Lives Matter moment, which is like a really positive thing that I've supported. And, But I think one of the drawbacks of that term in particular is that in trying to highlight like Black, Indigenous, people of color or Black, Indigenous and people of color, depending on who you talk to about what BIPOC means, there's potentially a sort of, I don't know, kind of like an exclusionary logic or some sort of like hierarchical logic that's, you know, in that term. And I don't, I think it leads to kind of, weird things on the ground like I've been to a lot of protests over the past couple of years where you know it's the sort of thing of like if you're white you need to go over to this side and you can't talk or you know we want to have this particular group of people talk first and be in this position and some of that stuff I just find really weird as someone who really cares about organizing and has been involved in it and really believes in the interpersonal and extremely like long-term relationship building that has to undergird you know solidarity struggles so yeah I guess I guess I just worry about that and kind of like what it does to us and what it does to the way that we need to see the world and of course like people of color is I'll just go continue going with my term of like synthetic like and you know all of this stuff is just provisional and contingent and like um, sort of situational. And yet at the same time, I think it can be very, very useful in doing politics. You know, that said, I think I would also, you know, if I'm if I'm doing some sort of like union campaign and very, you know aware of the fact that whatever the majority of workers in this particular workplace are white and I want to have a really inclusive meeting, like I think we would also think about like what role does acknowledging the particular struggles of people of color, play in that particular meeting. Like all of this stuff to me is like, like they're organizing questions, but like when we deploy certain words and like what we want them to do, I think there is something still to me that is that is like real about like what like people of color, like what non-white people share and like how that can help us analyze the world of power.
3: Andy, Jay. Personally, like, you know, I go to these jobs and there's always like a room in the slack, you know, that's like for, for, Non white people. People of color. I love that stuff.
2: I've never you know, been
3: in one. Yeah, I, I was in one <laughs> at one place in particular that was great, you know. But um so I don't doubt these connections exist, right? Or that there is some shared experience. I just think that the term itself at this point is under such like it's so hotly contested, right? And who is in, who's out, you know, like who counts, who doesn't count? Yeah. What are you talking about? When is it employed? And so like uh, yes, it is uh, it is used when a corporate slack needs a space for people to talk you know <laughs> um it is used when i would say you know especially by asian americans it's used when it is convenient to think of oneself as a person of color and i am not saying that all the invocations are cynical but it does seem to be like you know like uh if somebody has some sort of complaint or something happens or then they then they say oh well people of color you know or if they want more diversity at a place and they say people of color, I'm not sure if I think that that type of politics is necessarily productive at this point or if it leads to just more fights about what the term actually means and who's included. So, you know, in schooling you have these you know now you have categories where it's like white and Asian versus people of color, right? And then it's like all right, so what what does this term mean? Is it just does it just mean when certain races are on the on the short side of the ledger. And I also think it has a mystifying effect because it's so confusing. Like, I just don't think that people really understand or grasp it anymore. And so my general sense is that, like, I don't think it's a useless term in the way that I think Asian American is a useless term. But I do think that it is a term that it is not particularly... uh, It has so little clarity now, and it seems like most of the conversations about it are just meta-debates about what it means.
0: As much as this podcast is dedicated to owning the libs, can we get out of either Asian American or people of color as long as racism makes race that the way that it does? And not to invoke history without context, but I'm reading a great book, this history by Rick Baldos called The Third Asiatic Invasion about US Empire in the Philippines and anti-Filipino nativism at home and like the very revealing interconnections and contradictions between the two things. And it's called the Third Asiatic Invasion. And it's called the Third Asiatic Invasion because that's what people were calling the arrival of Filipinos because the first one was Chinese and the second one was Japanese. So there is one continuity I think we can draw uh, pre and post-1965 is white Americans and probably other just non-Asian Americans in general homogenizing Asians. So it's almost like how can... Asian Americans, and look, we keep using the term Asian Americans even as we critique it. How do you escape a category that racism and the way that racism operates in American political economy is so conducive to creating? It's kind of how racism always makes race, in a sense, right?
2: There's some interesting um, stuff that's coming out, I think, within Asian American studies and Asian studies that I think. Is, is making this claim that, you know, racism, like in, specifically, for instance, United States racism against Asian immigrants starting in the 19th century looked different than the racism you would see against, you know, enslaved and emancipated black people. Right. And that those kinds of differences are grounded in political economy and that a liberal worldview would not be able to see that. Right. It's just about, you know, same and other and difference and all that stuff an approach that's more attenuated to political political economy would be able to draw those distinctions and i think that that would to go back to like the very beginning of, of this interview you know talking about why are people upset at china th- these days right i think a lot of it is grounded in political economy right people know that the economy in the united states has not been doing well for decades they see all the stuff that used to be made in the united states is made by in china these days And that is, I think, the basis for a lot of the friction that's out there. And so the racism against Chinese people is, it is a racism, but it's different than the racism. It's related, but still distinct from the racism or the stereotypes you would see against people from Latin America, against Black, against Muslim, against other groups, right? And so I think as as an academic, I think those approaches are much more useful for understanding racism and race. And you're right that we shouldn't get trapped in the language of race to combat race. I think that is kind of the folly that... That might maybe like, you know, Jay and Tam are talking about with POC and Asian American that we don't want to take these things for real and um, reify them too much as if like that is the basis for our identity. It might be strategically useful once in a while, but um, we want to think about the world, think politically um, along different lines than just race, right? Because then you get trapped uh, and you can't escape it.
1: But what's interesting is so if you apply the term working poor and working class before Asian American or POC,
3: you automatically
1: get like a way more useful category, (laughs) Um, you know, and I think we, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, obviously, is kind of how our language to describe ourselves is class differentiated. Um, But if we really specify, you know, that if we say working class POC, suddenly like what Black people, Latinos, Indigenous people, Asian people are facing in the U.S. actually looks quite similar. And you can kind of articulate the goals of that coalition. I'll put coalition in quotes because it needs to be created. But but yeah, I think that just points to the fact that obviously we need to ha- always have a class analysis over these over these race categories.
0: Now, a lot of the confusion about Asian Americans' position in the American racial hierarchy, I think, relates to Asians' incredibly diverse class positions and how those class positions are then rendered racially and culturally in the American imaginary. Because Asian Americans have... The highest median household income in the U.S., significantly higher than whites, but they're also the most unequal ethnic group in terms of income. And in in New York City, at least a few years back, Asian-Americans were the poorest immigrant group. How do you see the really various and contradictory ways that Asian-Americans fit into American political economy affect how Asian-Americans are racialized?
2: Yeah, I mean, the argument that I'll just throw out the book that that's kind of on my mind is uh, Aiko Day, uh, who's written a book called Alien Capital, has made this argument that on the one hand, Asian Americans are kind of racialized the same way that Jewish people were, right, that they embody the sort of abstract global capital that people, especially like working middle class people, find, you know, really invasive and that they should be targeted for that reason. But also, if you. And also
0: small businessmen in black ghettos.
2: Yeah, right. Like they they represent capital. They don't represent labor. On the other hand, if you go back to like yellow peril discourses from the 19th, the 20th century, and that might be, you know, in this book you're referring to, Dan, even Chinese workers were seen as not just workers, but as basically robots who were operating under the operating for white capital, right? If you look at the illustrations and caricatures of white people upset about Chinese railroad workers, right? They said it was unfair because these Chinese people are unfree coolies and prostitutes who are at the service of these white capitalists. And so in both cases, either Chinese merchants and capitalists or Chinese or Asian um, workers were kind of seen as embodying the sort of um, dehumanizing logic of global capitalism. Right. And, it's a really interesting thesis. I haven't thought too, too hard about it empirically or historically, but I think it does get at this point that, like, the fact that also we come from another country, we come across, from across this gigantic ocean, right? There is a sense that Asian Americans are this kind of unimaginable global thing that invades. Horde. Sorry. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, as opposed to, say, you know, other stereotypes would be like other groups are subordinate, And they're getting uppity and they are, you know, not staying in their place, right? Whereas Asian Americans are coming from the other direction, right? They're the ones who are uh, ruining everything. They're this invisible force that that. I think that's especially true, opposite with, obviously, the rise of China as an economic force. And then COVID, like, kind of intensified it, right? This literally invisible virus that has kind of ruined this country that came from China. So, yeah.
0: Though now there's a contrast with the 19th century in that sense, because Chinese... Workers in the 19th century were seen as so in, innately, biologically and culturally, or whatever, servile that they were incapable of standing up to capital and incapable of fulfilling the ideals of, of free labor, and thus, uh, you know, that that were the perceived to be the bedrock of of a free people in a democracy. So all of that was connected there. And now, I'm not sure. I don't know if the servile, if the servility is. Well, no, I think it does. I think it's still played out, for example, in the coverage of the sort of justificatory coverage of why Asian countries have done better than the U.S. in managing the pandemic.
1: Confucianism.
0: Christoph. You know, yeah, they'll Food just followers. follow all those. Yeah, <laughs> they'll follow rules. And that's that might be cool for them. But do you really want to do that, Americans? Is that is that who we are? No, thank you.
2: It's good to bring in this, to talk about what exactly you're talking about, that Asian Americans have this these crazy statistics in terms of their income levels, and like we have to be honest about, like who is who is speaking for Asian Americans and and what what does that mean? It's not this liberal sense of it's not just this liberal category of we're a different group. It's like we're also a group that seems to be thriving economically in some parts of this country, and obviously um, many Asian Americans are not. And there's a huge income gap, and there's a huge question of like who gets to speak for other Asian Americans and how do what does the everyday experience for other americans to perceive asian americans you know like i think that would that's good to complicate the discussion
3: right the the if as long as the conversation is dominated by this sort of upwardly mobile group that you know i referred to before then i i do think it is i think that's also part of the reason why it's hard to imagine oneself or for other groups to imagine that that those people are within some sort of POC coalition or any type of coalition at all, right? Because it's like, well, you're fine, you know? Um, You went to X school and, you know, you make X amount of money. I don't know, I've always thought, not always thought, but, you know, recently I've thought like, well, like I I don't mean to be like a nihilist here and say, oh, every term sucks, you know? And so I have, I I do think that there's a, my thought has always just been that one should, that if Asian American is an identity, then it should be centered around, the concerns of working class Asian-Americans, you know, and that that it requires for, you know, people like me, Tammy and Andy to sort of like give up our own neurosis about belonging in the upper middle class or something like that. And to really just sort of uh, engage and indulge in real work with coalition building. And I do think that if you create something like that, then the natural solidarity with Latino groups at the very least, right, is becomes much more obvious. Because you can tell a story about how we need services. We're all immigrants, right? Like, we 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 work. We're workers. Like, that, that sort of conversation, I think, is much more conducive. And I also think that within Asian Americans, that it would actually be more attractive. Like, because, you know, I will say, I sense this fatigue. And maybe this is just me, you know, projecting out to everyone. I just like nobody likes this <laughs> version of the identity that exists right now. You know, like, no, no I, like nobody wants it to be about crazy rich Asians and Hollywood representation and, you know, like the bamboo ceiling and, and CEO and like the, well, that, the last thing is more, you know, serious in terms of like actual career advancement. But the first two, you know, where everyone's like, oh, well, now like this Marvel movie existed and there are no Asians in it you know, and they've whitewashed us again. Like, nobody wants that. Nobody really wants their <laughs> political identity to be those types of questions, right? So I don't know. My hope has has been to that. Like, maybe we can... Uh, I just do it by, like, mercilessly controlling the <laughs> people who do that, which is not a productive way to do it. But there must be there must be some sort of alternative out there that is more rooted in the concerns of, like, working-class immigrants.
0: Speaking of the the bamboo ceilings, I, I want to get a little more into how educational politics are remaking Asian American politics because, like, what does it mean that this collective identity of Asian American is so often taken on in response to, to shared adversity when, in some cases, the adversities that Asian Americans feel that they collectively face don't sit at all well with left politics? For example, Asian American opposition to efforts to diversify elite public high schools like Bronx Science in in New York by de-emphasizing standardized tests and admissions, opposition to universities that, opposition to university affirmative action programs and admission practices that some activists charge discriminate against Asians. How did these controversies emerge and how are they playing out among Asian Americans socially and politically?
2: Jay's the one who's written more about this. The one thing I will say, though, is looking at the numbers, you know, there's the Numbers that suggest Asian American support for, for, for affirmative action has fallen over the last decade, but if you disaggregate it, it's almost entirely Chinese immigrants who have a negative view. Everyone else, probably because like you know we're all liberalized, become liberals in our in our bubbles, um, more or less support it the same to the same degree I think as they did it ten years ago. So it's actually probably has to be kind of further specified as first generation, second generation Chinese immigrants. Um, that's my impression, but I don't know.
3: Yeah, I also I don't know how much those polls matter because like once you change the wording in a few of those like the number the results are totally different, right? Um like it's like if you do you support affirmative action has a high yes rate, but if you change it to like do you think that race should play a factor in university admissions, and it plummets, right? And so and then also you have actual referendums like we had last year in the election here in California about, you know, restoring affirmative action which you know, got trounced, right? And then a lot of the people who vote against it were, were Asian-American. So I think that sort of liberal Asian-Americans like to trot out those numbers and say, hey, we we do, you know, we do support affirmative action. We're not all like this. But, you know, the reality is that many many are not. I would say the majority are not, but, you know, many are, right? And that, that it, dealing with the issue sort of requires like a more uh, honest assessment of what's going on. In terms of the, what this movement is, it's it, a lot of it is online, you know, a lot of it is through messaging apps. Uh, it started, you know, the sort of most prominent version of it started with a skit on the Jimmy Kimmel show that was, you know, pretty racist, I guess. And, and I, mean, I mean, I don't know, it, it was pretty racist, right? I don't, I don't mean to like hedge here, it was pretty racist. And so, uh, you know, these Chinese community organizers started talking to each other on WeChat, they organized a big protest against a Jimmy Kimmel show, Jimmy Kimmel actually (laughs) apologized. And off that victory, you know, they moved into educational issues and they grew and grew and grew. And they got in touch with Ed Bloom, who is, you know, the guy who is behind the affirmative action lawsuits at Harvard, UNC, Yale, some other schools as well. So they sort of are tapping into this conservative legal machine, conservative activist legal machine. You know, there was a lot of crossover with the Peter Lang, Akai Gurley protests, which involved like an Asian cop who shot and killed a, a, black person in a, you know, in a stairwell, um, in New York City. You know, I I think there's a there is a, desire to sort of say that this is just like online ephemera, right? That nobody except these people actually think this, and that uh, people are mistaking, the uh, a lot of online activity for something that's real, but. I don't know i I think that voting patterns right now and you know just people that you know in your own life, but also <laughs> I don't, like you know it's like things like what happened with the proposition to restore affirmative action in California, I think it shows that right like this is actually a reflection of of how a lot of people in the community do feel, and I think it's it's a real thing
0: um and it's it certainly had an impact in. New York City, where there's been a lot of talk about getting rid of whatever the exam that you have to take to get into the fancy public high schools in New York, because almost no black and Latino students are at Bronx Science or Stuyvesant or Brooklyn Tech. And that hasn't happened. And I think in significant part, it's because there's been pretty staunch opposition from Asian American parents.
3: Yes. And, and also just because like some of the weird laws in New York City, in New York State, where you can't, the mayor can't actually overturn that without getting, like, mayor without getting Cuomo to sign off on it, basically, because it was enshrined in state law. So that makes it a little bit more complicated. Yeah, the protests against ending the test is a SHSAT, right? the The protests against ending those were pretty big. Did radicalize a lot of not radicalize, but it certainly activated a lot of Chinese parents uh, who communicate with one another. In the article I wrote about this, right? It was like basically what happened was that there was a at Bronx Science, there was a homework Chinese uh, Chinese American homework group that the parents did just to make sure that they were keeping up on their kids' homework, and that homework group became like sort of the central hub of of the anti SHSAT stuff. So, um, wow, rules you know, for radicals. <laughs> yeah,
0: <seriously. laughs> well, there's
3: just a lot of there's a lot of organ like that sort of organic organizing, I would say is happening a lot right now. And, you know, it's for the same reason that a lot of that type of organizing is happening right now is that everyone's connected and they can talk to each other.
0: Andy, Tammy, does this add up potentially to a big problem potentially in where Asian Americans, or maybe we should specify in this case, Chinese Americans are heading politically?
2: Yeah. I mean, it is, it is an issue, I think, but I don't know what to do about it. And I'm sort of like, thank God. I'm in my thirties, on the other hand, I have a daughter, so it'll come up again. But um, I'm glad I'm not applying to college right now, in the midst of all this, and having to take a stance on it right now. But yeah, I mean, it's not definitely not going. It's not definitely not going away. It seems like, right?
3: Yeah, it's very difficult to address. Right, covering the Harvard trial, the thing that the thing that kept bothering me was that everybody agrees that Harvard discriminates against Asian students. Right, and maybe Tammy and Andy don't, but you know almost everyone agrees. Like the evidence is like overwhelming. And, because it's and, like notes and yeah,
0: admissions yeah. files that it's are like, cr- yeah. this person is a right, robot who is to <laughs> right. type A and, it, and doesn't have not, emotions or an interior life. It's <laughs> not even stuff like that. It's like stuff where they would have
3: different SAT cutoffs, you know, for different people. And that, you know, the, the Asian will always be the highest SAT cutoff. And there are these ridiculous examples where like regionally speaking, right, because Harvard also wants to be regionally diverse, right? So, White people count as regionally diverse, but Asian people don't count as regionally diverse. And so like two students could be in, let's say, I don't know what is a place that doesn't send a lot of people to heart. I don't mean to be like Appalachia. Yeah. Appalachia or let's say Alaska or something like that. They could be sitting next to each other in the classroom. One is counted as regionally diverse. The other is not. And the reason why the person is not counted as regionally diverse is because they're Asian, right? That's discrimination by any, by any definition. Of course they discriminate against Asian students. Now, the problem is that these all these parents also know that they discriminate against Asian people, right? And then they look at the sort of opposition side and everyone's saying, wait, what do you mean they don't discriminate, right? And so then that leads to a real sort of deepening of reactionary politics and reactionary thought, I think, right? Because it is not a discussion and a debate. It is literally, these people are lying to me, so I'm going to listen to everything that the other side is telling me, right? At, at least they're t- being honest with us, at least they have our back. And I don't know how to fix that because um, I'm not like a liberal America spokesperson, nor do I have any influence (laughs) over what they say. But um, it it drove me crazy thinking about it, you know, because I was like, well, there's no conversation here. You know, everyone knows one thing and they're saying another thing. And so, of course, the people who are affected by the one thing that everybody knows are going to basically get mad at the people who they think are lying to them, right? And
1: and, and Jay, I mean, is the concern, because obviously we're talking about Harvard and Yale and we're talking about the specialized high school where so many, so few people go, like period, right? Um, and it's just hitting such an elite sphere. But that doesn't mean the families they're coming from are necessarily elite. Um, I guess I'm just curious, like in your reporting, what you found in terms of like how this discourse affects poor and working class people and like their communities. And, you know, because I think, is it just like an aspirational thing where even though, statistically speaking this actually affects like a super minority of people it it affects a much larger group because they all want their kids to go to these schools right and they and also
3: so are all listening to the same you know Chinese language chat or, room or right whatever. Yeah, or or even the media right so they're not getting their media from uh, NPR um, or you know ABC they're getting their media from Chinese language outlets which talk about this stuff endlessly you know and they do feel a certain they do feel, if they have kids, you know, they—I'm sure—they want their kids to go to these schools, right? And if they think they can't, right, even if they, you know, kind of quietly think, I don't know if like Wei uh, is going to make it here, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, you know, they're like, well, I would let at least like to him to have a chance, right? Exactly, so, yeah, um, yeah, that's yeah I do think that it—I don't think it's something that only affects the types of people who would go to Harvard, and also, you know, talking about Stuyvesant and these schools, or even Lowell here in San Francisco. The Asian population is not particularly wealthy of the students who go there, and you know a lot of them are people who have very solidly working class and undocumented backgrounds.
0: I think one hint here at how left politics might get around this racialized zero sum scarcity politics is what if all high schools were excellent, <laughs> equally excellent and integrated
1: yeah. Right. Great.
2: yeah, salted great yeah right.
1: that's the dream
3: yeah,
0: but as long as there're these uh, like yeah. w- weirdly, it's like, okay, most public schools are going to be deeply under-resourced and not prepare you to advance, move forward in life. And we're going to have a small number that are really excellent. It seems like that's going to end poorly no matter what. And because of the way race operates in American capitalism, it's ending poorly in this very specific way that's pitting Black and Latino people against Asians
2: that's why like i firmly believe and I think probably all of us that you know like the, those parts of like the bernie ish platform focusing on universal education would convert a lot of asian american voters who are undecided between the parties right and if you focus on things like providing education and universal access to these kinds of upward mobility um, avenues and that is that that would speak to them in a way that's less about, you know, white supremacy and you know, look how look how unracist our, our candidate is.
3: Yeah, that if you looked at a lot of the conversation around anti racism stuff in New York City, for example, under the old Chancellor at Carranza, right? Like it was always about equity in these elite spaces. There it was not really a radical vision at all. Right, like uh, even though he would call himself a radical, and people called him a radical in in negative ways, right? It was just how do we keep elite schools and how do we make them, you know, have the right percentages that reflect the rest of the city? And I, I just, you know, one of my frustrations with the way that anti-racism has functioned within education is just that, um, you know, you are dividing these groups, right? You are creating divisions within these groups, and yet you're offering no alternative than scarcity politics and exclusive, you know, who gets into Harvard. And, you know, I don't know. It seems like if you are the radical dude in that area, maybe <laughs> you should think about that sort of stuff. But um, but it never happens. It's equity within scarcity.
0: Yeah. I'm Master Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at Patreon. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by University of Guam Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Properties of Perpetual Light by Julian Again. The Properties of Perpetual Light is an homage to the work of the activist writer, with prose and poetry both bracing and quiet. Uggen weaves together stories from his childhood in the villages of Guam with searing political commentary. Naomi Klein said about the book, I did not know I needed this book until it had me in its embrace like the oldest and dearest of friends, from the very first page. Julian Ugin is also the founder of Blue Ocean Law, a progressive firm that works at the intersection of indigenous rights and environmental justice. Check out their important work at blueoceanlaw.com. The Properties of Perpetual Light, by Julian again, out now from University of Guam Press. We've talked a bunch about how we can't just invoke late 19th century anti-Asian racism to explain what's going on today, that there are these big disjunctures between pre and post 1965. But one thing that the Atlanta killings remind us is that a long-standing, I think seemingly permanent feature of anti-Asian racism has been how racism differentially sexualizes raced people by gender, and very much Asian America is very much included. Going back to the early history, the first federal immigration restriction law before the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act was the Page Law in 1875, which specifically targeted Chinese women as prostitutes. And today, obviously, the place of Asian women in the American imaginary continues to be decisively shaped by particular ways that Asian women are sexualized. But there's also a flip side of this, which is the way that Asian men, Asian American men are feminized and even desexualized in the popular imaginary. To what extent is this what we saw play out in Georgia? Where did this gender bifurcated construction of Asian sexuality come from? And Short of like this horrific murder that that happened, what are its concrete consequences for being an Asian American man or woman in America?
2: I think if we're going to talk about this, we should not try to veer into the realm of like purely it's about like the ideas in people's head and stereotypes and these ideas that have been passed down from generations. That there is a, since we know so little about the, the, the killer and the condition so far, I think one thing we could say is that the massage workers were placed in a situation that is reflective of maybe like a structural racism. I know we make fun of this term structural racism for being like kind of gibberish, but I think what we kind of mean is like there are economic and legal ways in which, you know, like Asian women in this particular case of a particular class are kind of pushed into this, or not pushed into, right? Or kind of, um, there's a pattern that emerges where certain people kind of fill different roles in like the social labor, right? And so to go back to like the 19th century context, like, yes, there was this law against prostitution, but there actually was prostitution, like so. We can't just like take this complete structural, socially constructivist approach and say it was completely made up. But there was prostitution because of migration patterns, um, laws against miscegenation. Um, eighty to ninety percent of the Chinese workers were men, um, and brothels were and opium dens were ways to kind of keep them entertained and occupied. And you know, this deals with like family migration patterns where. You know, there's a debate among scholars about this, but the facts remain that these things really existed. So um, we don't want to kind of say, like, well, it was just made up in the minds of these racist white legislators. They were reacting to something that they thought, that thought was real. Obviously, they were racist at the same time, right? And this produces all sorts of stereotypes where they would see any Asian woman and assume that, you know, she was a, a prostitute, which did not correspond to reality. So I think histories like that are useful in the sense that they can tell us, well, what is the kind of institutional, legal, economic basis? for these things to emerge. Um, The other example we talked about on our show was emerging histories of Korean sex workers for U.S. soldiers that kind of had this afterlife of Korean women working in the sex industry in the United States after the Korean War. There was an op-ed by Jong in the New York Times. There was an article in Harper's where a graduate student, I forget her name, but she's working on this particular issue, that comfort women's stations for the Japanese military were kind of emulated by the United States military. And this has a direct lineage to the sort of domestic, United States domestic sex work industry with, with a lot of Korean immigrants. I think those histories are really useful. And then we can talk about sort of the sort of correspondence or the back and forth between stereotypes and material reality. And, and I think that then we can say like, well, what we do know is the shooter went to these places expecting sex, And, you know, why do these places exist in their particular way? Like, maybe history can help fill in the blanks there. But um, I think it's, we don't know yet if, like, he just, like, did this because he had a huge Asian fetish, which I think a lot of people were kind of psychologizing before we knew the details of the facts of the case.
1: But it's also not just that Asian women are sexualized. Like, this murder looks like femicide all over the world. And there's all kinds of women who do really intimate caregiving and you know, different kinds of personal service labor that are brutalized and killed every day. And so I think I go back and forth on this because, yes, I, I, of course, like there are specific like racial stereotypes and, you know, fetishizations and that are historically inflected and that, you know, kind of predominate in some sort of ambient, like psychological way. But I mean, my first kind of reaction to the killings is like, of course, like, oh my God, you know, Korean and Chinese immigrant women, like my family members. But also like, here's another murder of women by a man, which to me is like a global problem and is a thing that patterns itself every single day. And I think like people who organize in these spaces would say something similar that, you know, yes, there's some specificity to it, but also it's just like a general problem of men's hatred of women and poor women and servile women, you know, and, um, I guess we've said this on our pod before, but yeah, the kind of like grand sweeping history through the Comfort Women stations all the way to Atlanta to me is, you know, both true in some ways and just kind of over explains also in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, And then lastly, I think with regards to the kind of this thing that's been said so many decades about how Asian men are, if you know, kind of Feminized or not taken seriously, desexualized in American culture. I really think that's overstated, and I've always been very skeptical of that analysis.
0: We've been talking a lot about Asian American politics and the variety, various manifestations, and one perhaps rather marginal one, but I think is one that's probably of particular interest to dig listeners. Andy, you've written about, which is tankies. (laughs) Who are tankies? Who are tankies? And to what extent have diasporic Chinese people embraced tanky politics? And to the extent that they have, why?
2: Yeah, no, this is a huge thing that I think has surprised all of us. But at the same time, maybe we could look back and say, of course, this is going to happen. Because the factors behind it are kind of these big geopolitical ones, not necessarily like, again, like one person was charismatically persuading everyone. So I went the in terms of Chinese diaspora, you know, Brian Hugh of New Bloom wrote an article and you know I talked to him about it about the specific appeal of tankyism to Chinese diaspora but I think it's actually more widespread than that. Tanky the definition I've I've figured out based on Google searches is that it refers to people in the UK who supported the USSR in spite of the USSR's brutal tank based suppression of hung of hungary in 1956 basically siding with a communist regime because you see it as like a check upon the capitalist world power right and this could f- similar phenomenon you know applies to latin american politics middle east politics in terms of east asia the first time i really thought about this, heard about this phenomenon was in 2019 when hong kong hong kong's protests were in the news and I just kind of thought it was a no-brainer that you should support Hong Kong if they want greater political democratic rights, even though I think the, the movement does have a lot of right-wing elements to it. And a lot of people were supporting were against Hong Kong because they thought that you'd have to support China no matter what. And this was like kind of mind-blowing to me at the time. At the time, all we saw was like footage of like brutal police violence. And I thought, you know, this is kind of undeniable. I think the What's what's really going on, though, I think more broadly is that people are not taking this position necessarily because they know anything about China. In fact, like what was most confusing to me at first was that the people who spoke, speak out on this issue very often, obviously, did not speak the Chinese language, ch- understand Chinese media, um, study China, right? They were uh, political activists in, like who focus on other things. So I think the main th- appeal, again, is just this idea that, you know, we're in a world post-Cold War where the United States is the sort of unquestioned hegemon into the foreseeable future. There are no political alternatives. China seems to be the only one that poses some sort of check upon the United States. And so you can kind of project all of your kind of hopes and fears and you know, and fantasies of an alternate political, you know, alternate political universe onto China. And so they've kind of occupied the space where I think, you know, like Venezuela was before and like Syria was before. And it's interesting because... You know, I've, I've heard, um, uh, we, you know, we talked with uh, a group of activists, uh, Lao San, who are like Hong Kong diasporic activists, who've given this anecdote, Edward Wong gave this anecdote that he was trying to organize a, 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 an activity, a movement for sort of a, I don't know, a, um, an activity in support of Hong Kong and Canada. And it was the Chilean activists who were really against it. And they talked to them and they kind of heard each other's side. And ultimately, they just felt like their feelings for United States imperialism overruled any feelings like they they understood where the Hong Kong activists were coming from, but for them, like the number one most important issue was their feelings towards United States imperialism in Latin America. Um, So I think that's kind of part of the appeal that it's, it's anti-imperialism that has gone, has gone very far. And I'm at the point now where I kind of think, you know, like, there's only so much we can do. A lot of people are coming to this conclusion you know beyond the control of podcasts and 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 blog posts you know like <laughs> like a lot of domestic socialists
0: beyond the c- control of podcasts
3: <laughs> I, <God>. know. <laughs> I know. <Really? laughs>
2: they're on, on the <laughs> um, yeah like there are domestic socialist groups in the united states who honestly like their view on china doesn't really matter right like they're mostly focused on domestic issues but they do have you know, they've taken like the Atlanta shootings and run with it, and talked about how this is about um, how we shouldn't demonize China and the CCP, and how they the Atlanta the Atlanta shootings were the fault of the Biden administration for taking a hard line on China, you know. But they've otherwise like talked about how like Tiananmen and Xinjiang and Hong Kong, they've been basically de- denialists about these things.
0: Yeah, they've had a field day on on Twitter, and I've seen a lot more tankies than ever before show up in my feed because they have points that they can make about this where they have you know, screenshots of things, anti-China things that liberal politicians have said next to what's happened in Georgia. And it's something that's compelling to anyone on the left, not just a tanky. And then, but you would have to scroll down their timeline to see that they're denying that anything wrong is happening with Uyghurs, for example. Yeah. example. to
2: be clear, like five, 10% of me gets it. You know, I'm like, yeah, like there's a lot of hypocrisy with the United States. I'm not a fan of the United States as an unchecked, (laughs) indefinite global hegemon either. Um, But it's a
0: problem if your anti-imperialism is not rooted in some kind of solidarity with actual human beings that exist in other countries. If it's just sort of abstracted to the level of statecraft, there's something inhumane. Yeah, just like kind of counter to the kind of humanism that has to be the to undergird all left politics, I feel like. But to what I
2: wonder ex- if it's generational. I've heard like a lot of younger activists and college students are. It's why it's more widespread among them. Maybe in our generation, because I don't know, we were like slightly post Cold War. It's less thinkable. But I think maybe as people's memory of the Cold War fades and they just kind of think about, they're sick of American empire, you know, ad nauseum. Then maybe this uh, <clears throat> this position has more traction.
0: Yeah, when I was a young leftist in the late nineties, no one was trying to tell me that Stalin did nothing wrong. <laughs> That was like not that was not a talking Ew. point, but Andy, to what extent are because I've been aware of tankies for quite a few years, but to what extent is this something that's appealing disproportionately or particularly in some way to Chinese Americans or diasporic Chinese generally?
2: I think there is a version of it that's different than the one that I hear is in the DSA, for
0: instance. Um,
2: I think the <laughs> you know like, like I think I think for like, uh, like not to like throw shade at the whole <laughs> like just hear like these tendencies among. American leftists, that, you know, for them, it's like China is this, you know, for like non-Chinese people, it's like, you know, they just hear these stories and they have this choice, of like, do you believe the corporate United States media or do you, prov- do you believe this like edgy alternate media source, they choose the latter, right? I think for Chinese, uh, the Chinese diaspora I've seen have, who have this tendency, they don't, they don't see themselves as tanky, right? They just see themselves as kind of saying, like, they feel like they're under attack by the West. They feel like, yeah, do you have to have a more sober picture and you could honestly paint a tanky picture not i mean in other words like another problem is like the word tanky is so derogatory like i think for them they're nationalists you know and like we, we we which is a more neutral sounding phrase like they feel like if you read chinese media and like follow the story from the chinese side and there's all this stuff that the rest of the world the west doesn't understand about my country or my people you know that's a fair position i think a lot of people feel and they're not necessarily Denying anything bad is happening in Xinjiang, they would just say like, "But this is an issue that we're going to take care of." And you know, many Uyghurs are totally okay with the CCP, which is true. And instead of having sanctions, we should like work towards some sort of cooperative solution, and so on and so forth, right? And um, so they, they would be kind of like have a have a softer version of just kind of nationalism. And but but I think the the roots are the same, right? There's this sense of like the West just gets to make all the rules, and they're hypocritical about it. There's, you know, this last week there was a big controversy that the Chinese government and Chinese celebrities uh, what's the word? disowned or rebuked global brands such as HM and Burberry because they had criticized Xinjiang sourcing, consourcing. And a lot of the tweets you would see were like they would talk about United States slavery and, you right, like African chattel slavery as it's hypocritical for the United States to criticize us over how we grow cotton when you guys had this history and that's like pretty intense stuff right and uh but i think like it's a it's a view that i mean i think it appeals to a lot of people who feel like this is about united states hypocrisy and less about anything that china does
3: it reminds me of like what japan did and you know before uh in the pre-war period where so much of the messaging that they were putting out to the rest of Asia that they had colonized was essentially that, like, America is so racist, you know, like, ha- like uh, at least let's, and maybe this was a moment of attempted construction of, like, an Asian Definitely. something. Definitely. The co-prosperity you know? <laughs> sphere
1: is what they There's, called it, right? That was
3: <laughs> Asian solidarity. Right. Yeah. They're, yeah they're, but they would say, like, look at American slavery, you know. And then a lot of the pressure of why those immigration laws changed was because it was very effective to say, like, you know, how could you ever ally or even feel ambivalent about the West? They won't even let you in, you know, like they have specific laws about keeping you out. And that that sort of became very complicated, you know, post-Korean War and post uh, and, you know, during the Vietnam War as well, where, you know, after the Korean War, you you know what? How do you how do you make a message to you know this colony in South Korea essentially that you've created or this you know place that you've that you've occupied when you don't allow any of those people in, right? And that created a lot of the pressure along with uh, a lot of Jewish uh, legislators in the United States who were, you know very aware that a lot of the other rules were about you know when they say no Eastern and Southern Europeans, right? Like they you yeah. know they they know exactly what that means. Um, that those dual pressures were really what kind of changed the the immigration laws in the United States. In 1965
0: Um, and going back to 1943, when Chinese exclusion was officially repealed, even though it didn't allow very many Chinese people to come in, that was a time when China was supposed to be a U.S. wartime
3: ally against Japan. So it was sort of awkward to have Chinese exclusion on the books. Right, right. And that was when Japan was peppering china with like you know like how you know like how could you be an ally with these people who are so racist against <laughs> <Yeah>. you, <laughs> you know? um and then like yeah weirdly the author pearles buck did a lot of the work you know for um changing a lot of this stuff uh, and sort of you know basically making that argument on mm, yeah. the american side like, just being like well you know how can we possibly ask these people like to stand earth. with yeah. us when we have these types of deeply racist immigration laws
1: she's amazing and she and her husband did extraordinary work on the left in publishing and organizing, supporting movements here and abroad. I need
0: to do a Pearl Buck episode.
1: I <clears> mean, <throat> yeah, she's incredible.
0: <laughs> a big part of Asian Americans' class position as a, a cultural object in this country is the notion of Asians being a model minority. And it's an idea that emerged historically alongside the end of all of these racist immigration laws restricting or excluding Asians from entering the United States. What can we learn from this history and particularly all of the explicit and implicit negative comparisons to black people that the model minority idea entails? Does it just recapitulate the story of white ethnic grandchildren of Southern or Eastern European immigrants pulling themselves up out of the ghetto by their bootstraps and then becoming white or or something more particular going on? with the Asian model minority idea and the way that it's conveys a certain racism against black Americans in particular.
2: Well, so the brief brief background is that I think that history is most concretely, that idea is most concretely crystallized in the Moynihan report, the famous Moynihan report, right? That talks about how, um, how irresponsible um, black families are. And by contrast, Asian American families are better. Um, the other thing that was going on was that this was part of a cold war idea that, we need to show that Asians can succeed. Asian countries, so like Taiwan and South Korea, where you know where our parents came from, and also Asian Americans can succeed and you don't need socialism, you don't need a revolution, right? You can thrive in a capitalist society. I wonder if the model minority moment has kind of passed now for all those reasons we've just talked about, with affirmative action debates, anti sort of anti China economic fears these days, where China is kind of seen as well, oh, Asian Americans, Asians, China, whatever, right, are seen as too mobile. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, they're not happy that Asians are succeeding in a white-dominated society. They're actually kind of afraid that they're going to succeed too much. So I almost wonder model minority is like, was very much a real thing. But I almost wonder if now we can look back on it as a moment that's, we're in a different period by now.
3: But I mean, I don't don't know. Because these right-wing dudes, you know, these right-wing Asian dudes, like uh, there's one who was just on Tucker Carlson. He's sort of like the young, he's like sort of the young right-wing charismatic guy that they're going to try and put out in front of everything um their argument is like model minority is good you know they're based and they make all the implicit racist arguments except they make them explicitly right they don't like they're basically just like well these people can't get in because they don't work as hard because they don't have uh, and and they almost race themselves in this really fascinating way where like a guy interviewed for a long time and who I still talk to from time to time, although I think right now he's very mad at me. But like he wrote a book called, you know, The Five Confucian Secrets to Chinese Chinese American Success. I don't know if that's the exact title, but, you know, it was essentially being like, we have these traditions, you know, and they're ingrained in us. And that's why we succeed. And America should accept us and not be racist towards us because we can contribute to to America, you know, in these sorts of ways. And it's like academics and hard work. And we can teach you, we can teach you white Americans how to, how to be more like us. Um, and then, you know, if you, I of course asked him when I was talking to him, I was like, well, you know, okay, like, well, what do you think the characteristics of other races are and what they can contribute? And he's like, well, sports and music, you know? I was like, all right, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, no. And so, like, yeah. this idea that the Future, I think, of this sort of group, right, is not going to be resisting the model minority myth or talking about it in any sort of way. I think they're just going to inhabit it, you know, and they're going to say the model minority myth is, is good. You know, it's not a myth. We are the model minority. Um, and that, of course, has been a that's been a function of right-wing Asian politics forever. But it's never been this visible or this explicit, I think, right? And, you know, it used to be that, like, a right-wing Asian person was John Yu or something like that, right? Or a neoconservative. And they would ally themselves, you know, with, uh, with those groups and that they would try and be raceless, right? That's not true anymore. Like, this is a new form of identity politics that is coming out that is essentially model minority good. So, any, anyway, I agree that I think that, like, the sort of conversation about it is outdated, but I also think that like uh, we have to like acknowledge that, that the right that the right is uh, the ascending right is kind of just be like yeah cool you know model minority what are you talking about that shit's awesome
1: maybe it started with Amy Chua's book
0: yeah is Tiger Mama a turning point
1: that was the most sort of it was a liberal leaning in to this right wing idea that Jay just mentioned
0: because it seems like historically it was an idea developed for white. Americans but for very obvious reasons it could be a very attractive idea for Asian immigrants to nation Americans like why many people of many groups would respond well to be to being told that your group is one of the best or the best group
3: right and also like uh an arbiter of what is right and what's wrong right so if you watch that Tucker Carlson I don't I don't mean to place too much on one <laughs> Tucker Carlson interview but you know like uh Tucker Carlson interviewed James Roof, or I think it's Christopher Rufo, the guy who does all the anti-critical race theory stuff. You know, Christopher Rufo's big thing in that segment was talking about how the real, the people who will save us from critical race theory are the Asian Americans. And because they, whenever, like, they don't stand for it when it comes to their schools, right? Like, they'll act, which is actually, in, like, you know, down in the peninsula here in the Bay Area, it's true. You know, like, there was some sort of curriculum in Asian Americans' <laughs> parents got it thrown out, you know, um, at a very, very highly dense Asian American school. And so like the narrative on the right now is essentially like, we need you to save us because uh, white people are, too ensconced in white guilt and they won't do anything about it because they're petrified. But you people, you can just say this shit, you know, and <laughs> no one can say this to anything to you because you're not white. And you don't also you're not embarrassed by it. You know, so it's, it's just fascinating to watch now. I don't mean to laugh about it because, you know, part of the reason why I pay so much attention to it is because I think it's going to be extremely effective. Right. Like who doesn't like you said, Dan, like who doesn't like being told? Oh actually everything about you is great and like sets you up for success and everything else about all the other people who are getting in your way is like you know patholo- pathological or pathological and and bad you know it's a it's a appealing message and you know I don't exactly know how to combat it but you know it's certainly something that I think the right is gearing up to do right now Jay you wrote quote
0: if the democratic party wants to disaggregate immigrant populations from one another They must take a difficult, clear look at the dynamics between these groups and come up with a broad message that tries to find pockets of mutual interest. Broad anti-racist and anti-xenophobic messaging will not work for growing populations who mostly see themselves outside of America's racial hierarchy or, in many cases, believe their interests align better with middle-class white voters. The Republican Party's message of hard work, capitalism, and freedom makes sense to large portions of the immigrant population. In fact, it's why many of them, including my uncle and many of his fellow kitchen workers, chose to plant roots in the country. Democrats must find a similarly broad platform that focuses on the needs of working-class immigrants for health care, access to quality education, and other universal programs. Those of us who have assimilated into the professional class— must commit treason against people of color, in quotations, and help build a coalition of working class immigrants, from Guatemalan workers in fish processing plants and Bangladeshi cab drivers to Chinese and Vietnamese restaurant workers and Mexican farm workers. To close out, Bernie did really well among Asian Americans in the Democratic primary. And he did really well, of course, among Latinos as well, two groups that in the general election moved towards Trump that doesn't mean of course that it was like the same asian or same latino bernie primary voters who then voted for trump in the general but do you think that bernie began to articulate the sort of left politics that you're talking about that can resonate with asian voters in a way that whatever the standard liberal race talk has not
3: for sure and i mean nevada was you know one of the most hopeful the nevada primary i think for a lot of us was one of the most hopeful political moments, you know, of, of our lives, right? Where you do see this coalition building, where you do see people from different backgrounds coming together with shared interests. And yeah, I think that informed a lot of what I was thinking when I wrote that. It was also, you know, like my mentor in a lot of ways, Noel Ignatiev, and, you know, that this that line like uh, treason towards people of color is an adaptation of his slogan, you know, treason against the against the white race. You know, it was my personal adaptation as, you know, somebody who is not white and therefore cannot commit treason against the the white race. But what is the what is sort of the hegemonic structure in my life that that I think it keeps lower class and working class people, you know, of my people. Right. But also of all people down. And I I do think that that the disconnect at that point was, you know, that broad anti-racist language, broad uh, sort of you know, POC type of language that is mostly rooted in the concerns of a upwardly ascending group of people, that that is always going to leave behind like the, the working class people and that, that it is not a, like outside of like the immorality of it, right? Which I think is a huge part of it, right? Like it, you have to make that argument that pragmatically it also doesn't make sense, right? Because then what, what are your actual politics then, right? Except to sort of continue to engage in capitalism and whatever, neoliberal identity politics. And so my thought there was just like, there needs to be a hard break, right? Like this, there can't be a reform of POC. There can't be a reform of these types of identity politics. There needs to be some sort of real reckoning with it and perhaps even necessitate some sort of destruction of the past ways in which we thought about it. And I do think that you know, I I think that what happened in Nevada certainly would fall in, with the Bernie campaign, would certainly fall in line with that. Look at the hope and the sort of the excitement and look at the photos of the people who were there and ask yourself if that's the vision that you want for the country, right? Or do you want these endless, endless sort of like uh, litigations of like identity and what race means? And I think that the answer for many people would be that they want that, right? And it was for many people. But I do think that it requires A lot of people like myself to just sort of realize that like this version of success is not really working for me either (laughs) you know (laughs) right like uh like I I, I've done well in my career and you know like I've I've done everything that I was (laughs) supposed to do and yet I feel no liberation (laughs) I only feel academic liberation but it's obviously conditional upon other people's suffering and so, yeah, I, I think the treason thing came from, like, Noel Ignatiev and, and like, the Sojourner Truth Society and the, the that type of thinking.
0: Yeah, Andy and, and Tammy. And one thing I'll add is that there was a ton of attention justly paid to how well Bernie did amongst Latino voters, but very little written on his success with Asian American voters, even though every poll I could find in a variety of states, it was like in California, it was like Bernie way ahead and then second Bloomberg at some point. I don't know what <laughs> that, that poll was taken, but it's sort of <laughs> Asians I, I, are so tells weird. That
1: whole story. <laughs> I, I, I felt, felt like, I was yeah. like, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole
2: episode. <laughs> I could yeah. just say, you know, I talked to um, a young Asian American woman who worked for Bernie Brooke Adams and kind of read her those UCLA polls studies that were done in the summer of 2020 that did the sort of summary of Asian and Latino voters and how much they preferred Bernie. And she, no, you know, in terms of like why that was the case, right, like they didn't have any sort of grand unifying theory. She just kind of brought back the anecdote of her mom, who was a Republican voting Taiwanese um, Taiwanese um, immigrant who was kind of swayed by this discussion of opportunity and education. And, you know, a lot of Taiwanese immigrants of that generation, including my own, were Republican just out of reflex. And I think my mom, my parents were more like, Trump's a pig. That was more like compelling for them than, than the other message. But I, I, I do think like, you know, this message of like, education, health, like when I, Taiwan, for instance, has universal healthcare and a very successful history of public education. And they would totally agree that those are like, those are like uh, a no brainer for a civilized society. So when you bring it to that, as opposed to like some Cold War rhetoric about socialism versus capitalism, it's the the former kind of concrete stuff that I think really appeals to a lot of um, immigrants that might be on the fence.
3: Yeah, with Koreans, it's like, it's the same thing where it's, you know, but it's the opposite sort of where, um, many of the Koreans who immigrated to this country escaped from, as is now everybody knows because they've watched Parasite, I guess, but, you know, like a viciously class-based society. You know, I always thought that that type of message would be clarifying and, and edifying for people who, you know, escaped that. And a lot of the reason they came to the United States, you can say, is to be capitalist, but it was also because they had no opportunity at all because of, you know, just because of Korea's economic structure.
2: More generally, though, I think the story of Asian Americans is still to be determined because there's still lots of other signs that they were leaning more Democrat and leftist over the past decade before this election. Generally, I think from you know they've been progressively more Democratic over the last few cycles, and you also have prominent people like Ron Kim, uh, Yuli, Neo. Andrew Yang, right? So, so Andrew
3: Yang. You could have said Jane Kim, you know. You could have said yeah, a lot yeah. of other people, yeah. Jane Kim, right? Yeah. So,
2: you know, I think there are signs, or more optimistic signs, also, right?
1: And we've only been talking that, about East Asians, but South Asians tend to vote right, quite Rekana, liberal, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Except those uh, in the Howdy Modi, right? Well,
1: a lot of people though well, they rally. support Modi, yeah. but then they vote Democrat solidly here. You know, they're we're just full of contradictions.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Multitudes. Um, well, Andy Liu, Jay Caspian King, Tammy Kim, thank you all very much.
3: Thanks a lot. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Dan. That was fun.
0: Andy Liu is a historian of modern China and the author of T-War, A History of Capitalism in China and India. E. Tammy Kim is a freelance writer and contributor to New York Times Opinion. J. Caspian Kang is a writer-at-large for New York Times Magazine, and his new book, The Loneliest Americans, will be published this fall. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that xenophobia is the secret of the impotence of the English working class. It is the secret by which the capitalist class maintains its power. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also consider leaving us a very friendly review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, ostensibly. But I think what really does that is you telling people that you know in real life about why you listen to the show, why you like it, why they should listen to it while they'll like it. Please do make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.